Father, how grateful are we that we have a cornerstone, something to anchor our hearts, our minds, our spirits, something that will stand strong in the storms of life, a place where we may flee and hide, a place where we may even at times be stranded on your sovereignty, for there is no other place to go. But you are there, and you are strong, and our weakness, Lord, is made perfect through you. We are so grateful, so thankful. We give you our praise and our worship this day through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. One of the uh, one of my joys in pastoral ministry is to conduct wedding ceremonies. I honestly do not know how many I've done, but it's certainly well uh, over a hundred, many more than that, I can imagine. But I can say that each one of them was joyful. And uh, listen to the pronouncements, uh, the, the just wonderful words. Um, Jim and Sarah, I probably married 20 years ago, but for as much as Jim and Sarah have consented together in holy wedlock and have witnessed the same before God with vows and these witnesses by the authority committed to me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I therefore declare that Jim and Sarah are now husband and wife with the blessing of the church according to the ordinance of God in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Did you, uh, did you catch it? Some things necessarily happened so that something else could. Jim and Sarah consented to one another to marry. And then they made vows, and they made those vows before witnesses. You've all been to weddings and before God. And because of that, I could say, I therefore declare. Now, that's a major therefore. That's a therefore that changed, uh, those of you who are married, changed your lives. <laughs> and there are some very important therefores in life. Uh, the term itself simply means that something necessarily follows from another thing, that is, something else. Therefore, is used to draw a conclusion, and it's also used to connect thoughts together. Uh, you may have heard the word syllogism. That may bring back painful memories for some of you. Uh, but in, in Greek, the word uh, syllogismos means to draw a conclusion. That's what it means, draw a conclusion. Aristotle mastered this art. He's the one who said, all men are mortal. Uh, Socrates is a man, therefore, Socrates is mortal. And uh, he defined a syllogism as this, a discourse in which certain things having been supposed something different from the things supposed results of necessity. So I want you to think of that. I don't want to complicate the word any more than it is, but I want you to think of therefore as like a magnifying glass. 
that you've read a bunch of these big things and now you want to magnify in and you want to look at the so what? So what? In the marriage ceremony, the so what of the consenting and the vows and the presence of God and witnesses, the so what is you are now husband and wife. Pretty big so what? So that's what it is. You look at this and in it we say, okay, we've discussed these things. That's why it matters. So therefore, in in your Bible study, always think of therefore as a signal. It's a signal to you that something is being clarified. Something is being magnified. Some conclusion is being drawn based on what has proceeded. And so when we see, therefore, we should immediately stop and ask ourselves, do I know what is being clarified? Oftentimes we don't. And so we find some, and I'm not going to give examples because there's, there's no time, but we take verses completely out of context. We hang them on their walls. We quote them to others, we memorize them to ourselves, and it doesn't mean what we think it means. Why? Because it's following a therefore, and we didn't know what it was there for. Now, Paul doesn't offer a syllogism here. That's not what he's doing, but he does offer a conclusion from facts already stated. So stay tuned as we're going to spend the next few minutes looking into the answer to the question. What is the therefore, therefore? So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're not going to get all the way through 10. We'll only get through 6 today. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 reads, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I, therefore, as we, as we read in the text, I, therefore, in, is, is an English construction. Actually, in the original, it's therefore I. Now, there's some little importance there. It's a small but significant difference because one might read that it's because Paul is a prisoner of Christ. Because I am a prisoner of Christ, I urge you to do this. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, therefore, based on what I've written in the first three chapters, which, of course, he wouldn't have referred to them as chapters at all. You know, chapters and verses are a very recent... Uh, it, chapters and verses actually came along with our ability to read the Bible. So they're only a few hundred years old, believe it or not. The text was straight through. But regardless, he's saying, I'm therefore, based on what I've written, this is what I want 
It was not on him being a prisoner, but what he wrote. And here, the word that he says, where it says urge, some of your versions may say beg. Some may say implore, but that's the notion. I beg you, I urge you, I implore you, I beseech you to see the connection. He doesn't say this, I'm saying this. To see the connection between doctrine and life. Therefore, we see right here in this text, in verse 1, the singular most important pivot point in the entire book of Ephesians. Throughout the first half of the letter, the Apostle Paul spelled out our position in Christ. In chapter 1, he declared what Christ has done for us in his sovereignty. In chapter 2, 1 through 10, what Christ has done in us through his grace. And in chapter 2, 11 through chapter 3, verse 21, what Christ has done between us in reconciliation. For us, in us, between us. Christ has done all of this. And so what Paul now does is he says, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is who you are as a people. This is what God through Christ has done for you. And what we do is that is our vertical relationship with God. And that's codified in doctrine. And he moves with this one therefore, he moves from that over to our horizontal relationship with others, which we codify in our Christian way of life. In a phrase, we we move from the God-created community to the relational activity of that community. And Paul is begging this. He's begging this of us. He did of the Ephesians and certainly of us. He says to walk, and not just walk, which is a metaphor for live your life, but he's saying to do it in a particular way, and that is to walk worthy. Now, I, would, I, I love words. I would do a word study on this if I could right here and right now. But what I would say, uh, the, the small bit that I would say is this, that if you've ever seen a set of scales, so where, where you put something on one side and something on the other, or the uh, statue of... Uh, justice, and justice is blindfolded and holding uh, scales, right? Worthy is the word that is used when the scales are balanced. That's what the word worthy in this context means. It means an equal weight. But we have to ask ourselves as we read through this text, what is it that we're supposed to balance? What is it that Paul wants us to balance what with what. Thankfully, he doesn't leave us uh, hanging because he tells us right away uh, there in verse 1, it's our calling. Our calling and our conduct should be in balance. And that is not always the case. More about that later. But the calling, to my mind, is a, a double reference. We have been called to salvation. Praise God for that. And that necessarily means something else. We have been called to unity. 
in which he just detailed, in which we find its fullest uh, form, expression in Galatians 3.28. There is therefore uh, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or uh, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are, these are amazing statements. It reflects what Stan was saying this morning uh, in, in, in worship, that we are one big family. That's who we are. Oftentimes, we don't understand that. If you travel ex- uh, extensively or if you travel overseas, you discover that how true that is, how you find fellowship in the remotest of places based on fellowship in Jesus Christ. Therefore, our conduct concerns not only our personal life. See, it's not simply how you walk. It's not simply how you make your way through this world. It's also how you are in relationship to others in the church. Now, put simply what Paul is saying in matching and balancing our calling and our conduct is this. If you are a Christian, you have to act like one. If you're a believer, act like a believer. Christianity is not a label that we wear. It's not a religion that we dabble in. It's not a game that we play. It's not a banner that we wave. It is surrendering all of who you are, everything about you to become all that you can be in Jesus Christ. Forgive my pointedness here because some of you who will know who I'm referring to, but a famous young singer once uh, filled the cover of the uh, Contemporary Christian Music magazine. And uh, in 2007... She referred to the church as her single greatest source of strength. She even quoted, recited from memory, Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 as her favorite passage in the Bible. Finally, come close to the Lord, for if you put on the full armor of God, you can stand against the wiles of the devil. She stated that she was baptized. Sunday school and church were the source of her personal growth. That was in 2007. By 2014, she had outgrown the Bible. I'm not even going to say in what ways. And how does she feel today? Very recently, she wrote beautiful and quoted in part a quote from physicist Lawrence Krauss. Perhaps you've heard this before. Every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than the atoms in your right hand. It is really the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded. Because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, and all the things that matter for evolution and for life were not created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear 
furnaces of stars. I can't help but pause here for a second. Who made the nuclear furnaces of the stars? Anyway. And the, and the only way for the, them to get into your body is if those ex, uh, stars were kind enough to explode. So, here's the money line. Forget Jesus. The stars died for you so that you could be here today. That's the point. That's the point. The point is, forget Jesus. He did not die for you. The stars did. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mm. Poetic. I pray that that young woman will remember. And she will be called to the day because you know what? She represents... She represents some that you even know, some that you care about and some that you love who embraced the faith early and held it tightly and then seemed to have abandoned it. Remember the calling and balance that with conduct. And we, too, have to be careful because, you know, people follow people, Every one of you is a leader. I hope you realize that someone is following you. You may not even know who, but someone looks up to you and emulates you and follows you. And if you claim Jesus Christ, they're going to take how you live your life and they're going to embed that into their life. And that's going to be a part of how they balance their calling. It's so important for us to live our life in Christ. And not only must we balance that, that calling with our conduct, but that conduct is actually informed. That is, it is identified by or substantially influenced by three attitudes that he goes to point out. We see the first one in verse 2, humility. Now, you've got to understand this. In ancient Greek thought, humility was not a virtue. Was not a virtue. In fact, in many parts of the world today, humility is not a virtue. The Romans and the Greeks saw humility as the only virtue that a slave could have. That's where they felt it was a virtue, was among the slave population. And yet the Apostle Paul, I mean, think of the irony here, right? Paul is writing this from prison. It's only 2,000 years of Christian history that gives us any notion at all that humility is good. Only by being, and even we know that it's only by being filled with the Holy Spirit of God that we're able to walk humbly before our God. Walking humbly is not, trust me, it is not a task that you can undertake. It is a way of life that you live when you're filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. If you try to walk humbly, you will then become proud of your humility, like the, you know, the, the books, Humility and How I Attained It, by I Be Proud. <laughs> Yet in a, in a day when pride was a virtue, 
It was a virtue. Pride was a virtue. And it had to reach the level of hubris before the Greeks thought it was bad. And how did they know when pride turned to hubris? You know what the bar is? The standard? You had to, you had to encroach upon the gods in order to do that. Like Icarus. You remember him, son of Daedalus, who tried to fly to the sun. And he got so high and it got so warm that the wax on his feathered wings melted and he plummeted to his death. Anything short of that in the Greek mind was good. You were expected to toot your own horn. You were expected to show your accomplishments. You were expected to tell people how good you are. That's the time when he wrote and he was writing to Ephesians these people all felt this way he said in order for you to live this life that Christ is calling you to you must be humble Paul is telling believers uh, I would say also not to not to promote any kind of false humility, because false humility is nothing other than pride. But we should recognize where we are in God's program. And when we do that, it doesn't result in pride. When we recognize who we are and where we are in Christ. In other words, it, the first three chapters, if we recognize what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done in us, and what Christ has done between us, that will result in humility. And humility promotes unity, which is his overall point here. Now, I've used a couple of words. I want to I make sure we understand exactly what I'm talking about. Unity is not the same as union. I, I, I hope that you understand, and it's certainly not the same as uniformity. I mean, from the, the life of Samson, we learn that two foxes' tails could be tied together and one could say that they were in union, uh, but one could not say that they were in unity. Unity is when we are of one mind, spirit, purpose, mission, goal. We hold the same values. We hold the same things of importance. That's not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is when we all must believe the same thing. We must practice the same way, and deviations are not tolerated. I mean, we see that kind of totalitarian thinking creeping into our society now. No good has ever come from uniformity, nor will it ever. We embrace the diversity that we have, not just the simple diversity that's obvious on the face of it, but the thought diversity, the way that we operate as human beings in this world, we have to be humble. Most of us think we're right because that's the way we think. If I didn't think I wasn't right, I wouldn't think the way I think. So when we see someone who thinks differently than we do, we say, what's the matter with you? Something must be wrong. No, not wrong, just different. And humility also uh, doesn't equate with uh, worm theology. I mean, I could, we've talked about humility before, the whole, the whole notion of, of, of strength. 
under control. But nevertheless, I did want to say, I, I wanted to knock that down uh, a, a bit. We are created in the image of God. There's no worminess there. Samuel Morse was, uh, you all know who Samuel Morse was. It should ring a bell by the time I'm finished with this little illustration. It will ring a bell. He was born into a preacher's home, son of a, son of a, a preacher, in New England just two years after George Washington was elected the first president of the United States. He graduated from Yale, and he went to England to do something. Now, if you think of Samuel Morris, or Morse, you probably wouldn't think of what it was that he went to do in England. Samuel Morse was an artist. In fact, he was such a good artist that he was in demand all over. And he went to England to hone his painting skills. He went back to America and he was so recognized that he was called to Washington, D.C. to paint portraits, to paint pictures of uh, D.C. Very gifted, very in demand. While he was in D.C., his wife died. And he didn't even receive the news that she had become sick until after she had already passed. Heartbroken. He was heartbroken. And he left painting altogether. He despised it. He hated it. It was the thing that kept him from his beloved in her hour of need. And so he turned his mind to something else. He turned his mind, how can I ensure that this doesn't happen to anybody else? How can we develop a system of rapid communication over great distances? And so he invented the telegraph. The Morse code is still in use today. He became one of the most famous men of his day. But he wasn't boastful. He remarried after a time. He wrote this to his second wife. The more I contemplate this great undertaking, the more I feel my own littleness, and the more I perceive the hand of God in it. Now, those of you, those of you who have experienced grief understand how profound those words are. I perceive the hand of God in it and how he has assigned to various persons their duties. He being the great controller, all others the honored instruments. Hence, our dependence, first of all, on God and then on each other. Samuel understood that none of our success is based on our strength or our wisdom. He did not in any way, though, hold to any kind of lower theology in terms of what we might have called in the past worm theology. What you experience is not a feeling of worthlessness, but a feeling of gratitude. It's gratitude that we experience when we remember that it's God 
who makes what we do possible. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Second, a believer is to be meek. Uh, these two words are connected. Uh, it makes an antonym for pride, right? This is the opposite of self-assertion. It's the opposite of rudeness and harshness. And it suggests having your emotions under control. Aristotle said uh, this of this word. It is the mean between one who is angry all the time and one who is never angry. As in the Christian context, let me translate that. It is one whose anger is controlled by God. And therefore, when you are angry, it is always at the right time. And it is never at the wrong time. Moses, we're told, was the meekest man of all, the gentlest man of all. Yet he was angry when Israel sinned against God. Christ was meek and humble of heart. Yet he was angry. Don't let anybody tell you he wasn't. Don't let anybody dance around that. Christ was angry when he saw the temple of God being used as a place of thievery. Third, believers should exhibit patience. Those of you who have been patients understand where the word patient is came from because it's a painful process. I know several in here who have been enduring that uh, even recently. And this kind of patient even goes through times of adversity. It is the self-restraint that we have that doesn't hastily, quickly retaliate against a wrong. In fact, it's, there's an interesting uh, word that's, that's used here that this patience is always in reference to someone who is troublesome to you. <laughs> None of us have that. So the notion is you must be patient. So humility, gentleness, and patience, those are the things that foster Unity among this thing that we have, this family of God. I mentioned this before, but it, it does be, bear repeating. When I was learning to fly, I was told that an aircraft's uh, attitude is its position in the air relative to the ground. And that the key to a successful landing was to maintain the proper attitude regardless of atmospheric conditions. The same thing is true here. It's maintaining these attitudes of gentleness, of, of patience, of humility that will allow us to live this Christian life without wrecking. But what is it that governs these? Just a few more things. What manner are they to be carried out? Verse 2 tells us, in a word, it's love. And we've heard this before. Not only love, but in love, governing these three things, we are to do something. Now, now this is what we're to do. You want, okay, all this other stuff was being. 
This is how Paul wants you to be. And he got this from God, the Holy Spirit. But now he wants you to do something. He wants you to make every diligent effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Please note, you cannot create that unity. Don't even try. The unity is already present. The unity is there through the Holy Spirit indwelling us and being a part of not only the local church, but the church universal. And what we're to do is to maintain that peace. We're to guard that peace. So what is he saying? When there's no peace, it wasn't the spirit that moved. And we're to make every effort. And how do we do this? How do we maintain this unity? It's through the bond of peace. So that concern, the concern for peace, is that we are going to lovingly, patiently, gently, carefully, we're going to deal with each other, even when we have differences. And then, as we as we close uh, move towards the closing of the message here without a conjunction. All right. So Paul, he's like breathless here. He's saying, now I want to tell you why this is so important that you do these things. And he lists without break. He lists seven elements as the foundation for this radical thought. And that is based on the Trinity. He says one body that refers to Not only the universal church, but also local. One spirit, the Holy Spirit who dwells within. The words, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. That indicates that we have a common hope regarding the future. A confidence in God that we received when we were called to salvation. And here we see this great eternal Holy Spirit is the power behind the Christian church. You know, when the prophet uh, Zechariah was looking out and there was a mountain that needed to be flattened, the Lord told him it would be flattened. And Zechariah is saying, well, how, how can this be? How can we take care of this, this issue? How can we make this mountain a plain? What instruments would be provided? And the Lord said to Zechariah this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you think that Christianity is powerful based on its numbers, you need to rethink that. It's not powerful based on anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. One Lord refers to Christ, the head of the church. One faith speaks its more most likely a double reference to that body of of knowledge that we have, but also to our subjective uh, belief. That's something we've all experienced. We have each one of us who have trusted Christ, trusted Christ. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That refers to God the Father and his relationship to all believers. God the father of all who believe. We are his children. He is over us as sovereign. He lives 
through us, through the Spirit. Trinity here is vital, the one body of believers. This is Paul's logic. The one body is vitalized by the one Spirit so that all believers can have the one hope with the one Lord under God Almighty. The Father who is supreme over all, operative through all. He works through you. Do not think that he doesn't. If you have life and breath, he is using you. And that's the secret of the body. The secret of the body is that we're not an organization connected by notions, uh, even by almost even by beliefs. We're a body. We're connected by uh, like a cellular structure. Each one alive. And that's what makes us a body. And we discover that if there has been a work of grace in us, there is this marvelous underlying fundamental foundational unity which we will experience through the Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in love, even to the unlovely. And that is where our efforts must be. Our efforts, all this other stuff is being, but our efforts drive, do everything that you can towards unity. Unity individually with those in your network, in your sphere, but also unity in the church, not just local, but as far as, as the Arabs say, the blanket will cover. Father, we are deeply impressed by your work for us in your sovereignty, your work in us by your grace and your work between us through making the one new community of believers, the church. And Lord, how we're to walk in such a way that we balance that calling with our conduct and we do so with gentleness and meekness and patience, informed by love, making every effort to keep the unity through the bond of peace. We thank you and we praise you for all of these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.